Hello, it's Chuck from Above the Basement, Boston Music and Conversation. So how y'all doing? I uh, I went and I got a tattoo. If you've been on our socials, and I hope you are, if not, go look us up on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Uh, you can I'll get all that information at AboveTheBasement.com. I got a tattoo on my arm, on the inside of my arm, on the underside of my arm. It's called an Unalome. I got it at the uh, Gallery Tattoo Studio in West Concord, Massachusetts. Uh, they were great there. A guy named Swirls did my uh, did my tattoo. It was my first tattoo, and uh, and uh, I'm excited about it. An Unalome. It was very. It's very uh, apropos to my life right now. Uh, let me see what it says in Wiki here. Uh, Unalome symbol represents the path to enlightenment in the Buddhist culture. So it's got like some spirals. It started off with some like three dots and then some spirals, and then it goes off into a straight line, and then there's a dot at the end. So the spirals are meant to symbolize the twists and turns of life, and the straight line is the moment one reaches enlightenment or peace and harmony, and the dot at the end means uh, I'm dead. So hopefully I'm very, very far from that dot, uh, and I think I am. I'm still in the chaos of life, but things are uh, are okay. Um, so, you know, we've been putting out videos lately, and we've got another podcast that we put out. Um, it's through the Folk Americana Roots Hall of Fame, and you can visit that at the Wang Center in Boston. Uh, go to Folk Americana Roots Hall of Fame.org for more information there. But we've been putting out a, another podcast called Hallways, and we've put out three episodes so far. We had a little introductory trailer, uh, and then we talked to the founder of the Folk Americana Roots Hall of Fame, Mr. Joe Spaulding, CEO of the Box Center. And then uh, last week, we put out an episode with Patty Griffin, who's amazing. Since we'd spoken to her, she had won a Grammy. Uh, so we put out an episode there. And uh, tomorrow I'm going to be putting out our fourth episode uh, with Mr. Chuck McDermott, who is a local singer-songwriter and uh, a fantastic guy as well. And we've got a lot more coming up. We'll be, uh, we've got Keb Mo. We've got uh, a lot of episodes from when Ron went down to New Orleans to the Folk Alliance convention there. So a lot more of these episodes coming at you. All right, so let's get into... Uh, who we're talking to this week? Let me see where my uh, let me see where my document is. Okay, so if you've ever been to the Verb Hotel, which is right outside Fenway Park on Boylston Street, outbound, or perhaps seen the recent documentary WBCN and American Revolution, or even if you visited the Folk Americana Roots Hall of Fame at the Wang Center in Boston, you have seen artifacts gathered by Mr. David Bieber. David hails from Cleveland, but has lived in Boston since he moved here to attend BU as a journalism major in 1968, right at the beginning of the reign of WBCN. From there, he went on to work for WBCN, as well as WFNX and the Boston Phoenix, among others, and through those many years gathered all the posters, magazines, newspapers, photos, reel-to-reel tapes, LPs, and other ephemeral to fill enough tractor trailers to necessitate moving into an enormous warehouse in Norwood, Mass., at the Norwood Space Center. We were lucky enough to chat with David at the David Bieber Archives recently, surrounded by piles of memorabilia and boxes upon boxes of awesomeness. You've got to check out the pics our photographer Joe Wallace took to even get an idea of what this place has. 
Anyways, uh, David is a fantastic guy, and we were glad to finally talk about the collection and his plans for the archives. He even passed a rigorous ATB knowledge test that Ron initiated, so congratulations to David for that. So here is our conversation with Mr. David Bieber, recorded at the David Bieber Archives in Norwood, Massachusetts. David, I'm so glad we finally got to do this. So am I. I apologize for the, how long it took. I blame Ron for it. Okay. Only well, because he's sitting there. But <laughs> um, shift the responsibility elsewhere. Yeah. It was uh, it was something that we wanted we wanted to talk to you for a long time. On top of that, I think it's it's almost good that we waited a little bit because we got to work with you. Well, not really work with you so much as be affiliated more with you through the hall, through the uh, folk Americana, the, the folk root, Americana root and Roots, Roots Hall of Fame. Hall of Fame yeah. Yeah. I've seen you more and more. Exactly. Keep on Socially and uh, events and concerts and uh, fundraisers and uh, just had, and give me an opportunity to accumulate more items and more right. artifacts. So You got to, um, you <laughs> you got to I was, I, was a, I was a shadow of my former self until uh, you gave me the opportunity to <laughs> expand. Right. Yeah. See? We gave you the opportunity to, to, to flourish. Yeah. <laughs> I met you, the first time I met you was when our friend Adam Klein, whose office is right downstairs. Yes, exactly. Um, he had an opening party, and I came here, and you had this kind of open for people to kind of wander around and steal stuff. Right. So exactly. Um, so so it, I met you, you know, always. There. Oh, you, you, I, I encourage everyone to always leave with more than you came. with. Oh really? Yeah. Oh well. <laughs> so Ron, you don't have to. You don't have to empty your pockets. You can just, <laughs> you can just keep what you already took. You can leave you your cameras behind and uh, fill your bags with Very other good. things. Very good. I love it. That's I, great. I took the gold uh, record of the Jay Giles band. Oh, that's okay. already. It's in the Sorry. car. Oh, okay. That's all right. I've got the platinum one. <laughs> oh, okay. See, so you don't. I love how positive you matter. are. David. <laughs> He's got nine. He's of them. such an optimist. We are sitting here at the David Bieber Archives. And it's like Disneyland for me. It's like yeah, it's there's a lot of Mickey too. Unbelievable! I was just telling Ron, it would be, it must be so fun to take a box and open it up and see what's inside and just start pulling stuff out. It's like Christmas every day. We exactly. And there has been, when you come right down to it, decades of delayed gratification, because uh, I've been here at the Norwood Space Center for about three years. And prior to that, for probably 25 plus years, uh, everything was in unavailable storage in Avon uh, at a facility where everything was compressed. Uh, there were probably 35, 40 boxes on a pallet, and the pallets would be shrink-wrapped, and a forklift would come and put the pallets on industrial shelving, and that was it. See you later, sucker. It was gone. <laughs> it was in my brain that I had accumulated these things. Everything in here, I've touched. Yeah. That's so that, crazy. You know, there's my DNA on, on every item in here, but you know, touching something for 10 seconds uh, 32 years ago doesn't create a lasting memory. Yeah, but you know what, though? It's, it's a theme that you don't have in other museums. That's why this is an arc. It's a personal archives, and thus the name. I would have about 30, 40 boxes going on at home concurrently and I would bring maybe two three mail crates of content home every day you know 16 years at WBCN 19 years at the Boston Phoenix and WFNX and I would go through that content and put items in the appropriate boxes so it wasn't I wasn't creating time capsules I was creating you know a, a sense of categorization the t-shirts would go in a t-shirt box press kits would go in a press kit box albums would go in an album box and when those boxes got filled and 
my house at home in Rock, in West Roxbury was getting congested, then I'd ship yeah. the items off to Avon, never to be seen again. And I kept maybe point five one hundredths of one percent of my most favorite cherished items at home so that whenever somebody tasked me with an assignment can you show us some boston tea party posters those would be at home and they would be at my fingertips and so have you seen american pickers you watch that on tv american pickers no so it's these two guys who go around the country yeah. and they look in barns and old yeah. garages yeah. and they always are psyched to go into the owner of that their house because they know that's where all the best stuff will be sure. yeah. because they always will take the best stuff for themselves. Sure. So and that's, that's yeah, and that's that where we got to yeah. go. That's where the really cool stuff yes. is. Your house. Well, that we can we can do a follow up. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but and uh, and, and maybe well, we're that... staying over tonight, so tomorrow morning is going to be at breakfast at your place. Well, okay. you know, let's let's back up a little bit. So, okay. yeah. so are you are you originally from Boston area? Originally from Cleveland. From Cleveland. Yeah. And when did you move to Boston? I know you went to BU. Right? I went to BU. Came to Boston in 1968. Okay. Yeah. 1968. That's yeah. when I was born. Yeah. So that was a pivotal time. It was. It was, it was a pivotal time for me. Yeah. <laughs> Hugely pivotal. For and for none of us, the fact that he was born. But anyway, but for you, why was it pivotal? Well, I, I think that the 60s in general were a very exciting and consistently transitional time. I look at the 60s beginning with the assassination of Kennedy mm-hmm. and ending with the resignation of Nixon. You know, So you're really looking at a span from 1963 to 1974. And I think by 1974 the world had just run out of steam that there was an exhaustion that set in because the frenetic pace of what preceded the previous 10 11 years was so stunning in the changes that were occurring not just in the areas that are in here in terms of music and pop culture and media but sociologically and culturally and you know, politically, it was a relentless time. You know, people didn't really have a chance to take their breath before. It's almost like concurrent with what's going on today, Mm. that something that has such stopping power today is replaced by something that is even more impactful and more unreal tomorrow. And Mm. so, in a way, you just get into the rhythm of absurdity. You know, it's so crazy that if you take it seriously your brain's going to explode yeah we're sitting in this room right now there's lots of history there's there's lots of shapes and sizes and colors and there's pop culture from books to music to tv to news stories and everything else children's toys all this stuff to me this seems it reminds me of sort of like the physical like version of instagram uh-huh. if you walk through here it just reminds me of like us kind of physically doing that. Yeah. That's yeah. what you've created here. Well, and you know, the funny thing about all of this, there's a degree of randomness to it as well, in the sense that I have found kind of delight in various categories of content. So I am not singular in my pursuit. Um, a friend of mine who I worked with for many years and has since passed on, Stephen Mindich, uh, who was the owner of the Boston Phoenix and WFNX, he was a passionate collector of Jiminy Cricket, okay? <laughs> yeah. And we can examine the psychology of that, you know, a short man with 
maybe a sometimes questionable conscience yeah. who you know <laughs> collected a cricket that had the absolute conscience yeah. uh, but you yeah. know nonetheless he was a wonderful person and uh, I miss him dearly but he would go online and he would buy Jiminy Crickets of every configuration and every right. creation any surface that had a Jiminy Cricket on it the technology that you're talking about has eliminated the joy of the hunt for me I, I sometimes tell people that having a day job, as I did 16 years at WBCN, 19 years at the Phoenix and WFNX, that was an excuse to get all of this, all yes. of the things here that were the wonderful, tangible creations of so many different areas of commerce, whether it's the music business, the movie business, book publishing, the media, the toys and trinkets, and it was a constant challenge from one company to another within an industry to outdo the other in its creative mm -hmm. endeavor because they w were looking to get attention. They were looking to get that edge slightly over their competitor to get airplay, to get media coverage, whatever it was. So they'd create all these items and give them to you. And it was always the next thing. There's going to be a new poster. When you talk about the thrill of opening boxes that I haven't seen the contents of for decades, that really exists. Yeah. You know, opening a box and finding from 1972 when Alice Cooper had the School's Out album, mm. I found a, a six-foot yellow inflatable pencil that was used for a School's store up. display and it says schools out on it huh. and you, you have to have enough oxygen to blow it up but you know there <laughs> it is you know and i'm gonna, I'm gonna keep on pushing you Backwards in time here. Just Wait one it. second though. If you breathed but, in that air, was that mean that was 1972's air? Yeah, right? yeah. Exactly. yeah. It's probably fresher than it is today. <laughs> yeah, right. I, I always wanted to do instant water. Just add water. Just add water. Where you sell an empty bottle. Well, yeah, that's, yeah. that's that's a, Stephen uh, Wright. That's Stephen Wright. That I forgot what you, to add. What do you add to a powdered water? That's <laughs> what he, he didn't. That was his question. Okay. No, he said I once bought powdered water. I didn't know what to add. To I it didn't yet. know what to add. <laughs> that doesn't sound like him at all. My friend is really good at uh, limbo. He can go under a rug. <laughs> Stephen Wright, ladies and gentlemen. So you came in 1968. You came at the very beginning. And, and you can... I just got it. What? Under a rug? <laughs> Sorry, God, he's slow on the uptake. Um, well, his delivery is kind of slow, so this is. was it's the appropriate... My, it totally I have, sucked. Yeah, I don't have a good delivery. In 1968, that's when. That's about when, that's when uh, you're born. BCN took over... Uh, maybe it was a, little, a couple years earlier when BCN went from classical to... It was. It was March 15, 1968. It was. Okay. Yes, so it good. was. And so you got here right when BCN started. Yes. You worked for at least two, if not three, of the most seminal rock and roll establishments in Boston, WBCN and the Boston Phoenix. And WFNX. Radio, and WFNX. The companion radio station for sure. the Phoenix. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, unfortunately, B they're all gone right, right. and don't <laughs> blame me <laughs> i don't blame you but i mean boston phoenix that yeah. was the the newspaper in boston that was m not just about the news it was more about boston and arts and culture and and things like that that we were so sad to see to see you go but yes i have yeah. many many issues uh, yeah i remember and, boston phoenix, and, so. and the thing that's fascinating is to see the growth and then the decline i have issues that are four pages <laughs> and i have issues that are 440 I remember pages. they used to be thick, right? It was, about, it was magazine size, right? It was so well, it was it, just before the turn of the century in 1999 or maybe 2000, there was an issue 
that I think it was 10 or 11 sections and 440 pages, and the slash on the cover was 440 pages, our largest issue ever. Huh. And this was when the paper was free. And the uh, the street boxes, the, the, the poor people who were having to deliver they probably had to, you know, fill those boxes two or three times a day yeah, because the issues were so thick. You could probably get, you know, pages, half a dozen yeah, in yeah. a box, and they were gone very quickly, and they'd have to be restocked almost immediately. Uh, but you can't. You got here right at the beginning of that kind of revolution. Yeah, and, you yeah, know, yeah. They called BCN the American Revolution. as a as a documentary out. Right. Uh, it was created by Bill Lichtenstein called the WBCN the American Revolution. I mean, you got here right in time, just well, in time and, for, and for that. I, the the photograph that's used on the poster yeah. and the web. Website, I took that photo. Oh, really? Yeah, and it's what I commonly think about is we believe that everything is going to be available until it's not, that it's always a kind of our town moment. It's always a day in the life that kind of gradually morphs into something that goes in a different direction, and what we thought was going to be around forever isn't. Right. And so I took that Wait, picture. Tom, can you give me an example? Is that Well, I, I took that picture at uh, 312 Stewart Street. It was for uh, an article that I was doing. I was a journalism major at Boston University. I kind of took great delight in the fact that I was fulfilling classroom assignments and also selling articles to publications. Like I did a probably seven-page profile of BCN for Boston Magazine. Right. I was writing for Billboard Magazine. I was writing for The Globe. I was writing for Fusion Magazine, which was the East Coast counterpart of Rolling Stone at the time. What could be better? I mean, being able to take care of scholastic responsibilities and getting paid and getting a byline to do things and to make connections with people. We were all kind of, you know, peer group. It was an enchanting time in the sense that the people who were working the underground media, the alter later became the alternative media, but also the musicians and the people who were working for the record companies. They were, it was, it was kind of, I am you and you are me. Yeah, and we they were, were all integrated. Together. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah. And we were all rooting for each other because we were yeah. all kind of in that same uh, other universe culture. And we wanted to see our peers succeed. You know, the, I was not a musician, but, you know, I loved meeting musicians. Well, who, they needed you and you needed them, right, too. Right. I mean, obviously there's friendship, but, yeah. you, but there's a real sense that e this whole thing is going is not going to succeed without all the spokes of the wheel. Exactly. Exactly right. And I think that that was very evident with a station like WBCN which until March 15th, 1968 had a classical music format was uh, always on the precipice of bankruptcy or financial failure and the concept was uh, give us your worst time and if we can sell that time and show economic profitability, then let us move into the better time slots. And the, who were the early supporters, whether it was BCN or Boston After Dark or later uh, the Cambridge Phoenix, uh, the supporters were the movie companies and the record companies and the clothing stores and you know any of these entities that had product to sell that would benefit from the exposure in these media. And so it really was one hand washing the other. Yeah. That, you know, if you give us editorial coverage, good, bad, or indifferent, at least give us the exposure or give us the airplay, and we will reward you in kind with buying advertising uh, on the radio or in print. And we will also give you all these great toys and trinkets and artifacts 
to make you excited about what mm. we're creating. Is this something that you realize at the time? Is this something that you look back now and kind of understand how amazing time that was, that it, there was an American Revolution of that kind of radio station, of that kind of music that was coming out, that you, that, B, that BCN introduced to the, to the world? Or did you kind of understand that at the time? It- well, I, I think what was understood at the time, and I even wrote uh, my thesis on this in, in journalism, about the awareness of the fact that this was kind of the beginning of the DIY culture, you know, do it yourself, that you had to take the reins because traditional media was not playing the game as you were seeing the game evolve. And so this was where the underground press and underground movies and then even the kind of independent movies, the easy riders of the world that can, you know, things, you know, projects that were made on a relatively marginal budget ultimately exploded with great financial success and convinced the people who were in control that we better pay attention because there's a gold mine out there that we're not attending to. You know, by having more hands-on involvement, you kind of realize that there was a transition occurring, that that, uh, the reins were somewhat being passed, or at least the impact was being felt. You know, it's like I remember when I first came to Boston and I just cold called the Boston Globe and I went to the arts department and I already had some, dare I say, credentials because I was a campus correspondent for Billboard magazine and and I went and the the person who saw me was a guy named Gregory McDonald who was later to become the creator of the Fletch series, Fletch uh, detective novels and and he was an arts writer for the Globe. And I told him I just, you know, wanted to cover music and I loved rock and roll. And he kind of scoffed a little bit and he was being a bit of a realist and pragmatist. Mm. And he pointed to the bottom drawer of his desk and he said, everybody in here, they've got a bottle in that drawer and they hate what they're doing. And you mm. don't want to be a journalist. But if you are insistent upon being a journalist, I'll give you these albums to cover and review. And mm. I think I got... Uh, well, I know I got a copy. It was the best of the blues project, which was kind of strange because they never had any hits to begin with. Mm. Um, <laughs> but nonetheless, uh, creative packaging allowed for uh, another album to be put out. And the other was the uh, third Velvet Underground album. And I reviewed each of them, and I think I got maybe 5 or $10 for each of them. But very fortuitously, uh, a month or so later, after the view was in the paper, and it was maybe five sentences at best, you know, because they weren't, you know, mainstream media was not all that intrigued by the Blues Project or the Velvet Underground. But I was at a Billboard magazine convention in New York and I ran into Lou Reed and he knew my name because I had, it, it was one of the first traditional media coverages that the band had received. And he was there with his then manager, Steve Sesnick, and we hung out and I went, to, you know, to uh, the record plant where they were recording an album that didn't come out for another 17 years or whatever. Well, I wanted to ask you, so we were talking before on the tour that looking around here, I asked, what's the span of time? And you said roughly 1920 to 2020 now. Yeah. So 100 years. How's that for math, Chuck? Pretty good. If you look at sort of the bell-shaped curve looking back on this, what do you see as sort of the peaks of years and decades, of the pure amount of... The peak amount might be in the 1980s, just in the sense that there were so many publications, 
and record companies were still putting out vinyl, but they were also replacing the entirety of their catalog with CDs. And there was also that retail sensibility that, you know, bigger, better, faster, more gaudy, more extravagant. It was just an endless cycle of content that was being created. Now, not to say that that's not the case today, but you can look back now on the transition of technology taking over, particularly the 90s into the 2000s, where you know, a film company to showcase a new release would put out an elaborate press kits with all kinds of production notes and the backstory on all the actors and all the contributors to the creation of the film, the producers, the director. In the 90s into the 2000s, they ceased doing that and they would just send out a disc huh. and that had all the content. Huh. And then now it's a website. And now it's just sure. a code for a limited duration for a month. If you're a reviewer or if you're somehow contributing to the attention of that particular film, you punch in the code and you have access to all the images and all the backstory information. And then it goes away and there's no trace mm -hmm. of it. So what is in here in the archives are all those items that were created yeah. to inspire some kind of coverage and now you know there's there's no there's no footprint right that remains well how, as you were collecting all this stuff what was your curation mind i mean i would imagine you could probably go home with a carload of stuff every single day right right how would you choose what would what you'd take it was home? very random uh, i was responding to what was in my midst i mean i was aggressively pursuing things as well people would have a box next to their trash barrel and i would say to them instead of putting it in a press kit or a magazine in the trash yep. put it in the box and i'll come around weekly and pick it up it was the same thing at the, at, in the music department at, at wbcn the trade magazines you know they would build up they were used as a reference library uh this was pre-computer era so you know there was no technology to you know, give you the information that you needed. You saved your own reference content, and then it reached a point of saturation. It was an assembly line of content that was always coming through, and I would be the recipient, the beneficiary of all that material. My fear was that if I didn't have this content, it was lost, and that truly was a pre-tech uh, sensibility, that if you weren't resourceful enough to have your own media and your own material, Mm -hmm. for whatever unknown project might be lurking around the corner, then where were you going to get these things? You know, they didn't exist. I think what's occurred in the last maybe 10 plus years are that universities and museums and various institutions are coming to the realization that this content really does have value. It can be used for scholarly purposes. It can be used for installations, for exhibits. Uh, I remember being kind of uh, excited to learn at Boston University probably 30 plus years ago that there was a singular pursuit of one person, uh, Howard Gottlieb, who uh, started a uh, collections, special collections department uh, affiliated, I guess, with the library at BU. And now I think the uh, special collections number more than 2,000. Uh, ranging from um, Martin Luther King to Betty Davis to Mike Wallace hmm. uh, <laughs> and everything in between. So when you're collecting these and you're sending them off to a warehouse, I mean, I'm assuming that you're eventually you couldn't get to your bathroom and you had to 
send them off somewhere so you can at least take a leak without having to jump over boxes, right? I don't mean to be crude here. No, in the early days when I had a place in Cambridge, uh, fortunately there were two bathrooms, but one bathroom, the bathtub was filled with albums. So yeah. I know what you're saying. But as you were collecting it, did you have, was it really just about, you just loved the collection, or did you have this idea as like someday people are going to want to see all these things. Did you have that in mind at the time? Was it really just an infatuation for yourself? I think I think it was a, an infatuation for myself, but very quickly, as I started to save more things, people did turn to me as a resource. Ah. And there was a little bit of a pride in that to sure. be able to deliver. At the beginning, there was not even any payment. I just wanted a little credit line on the side, you know, courtesy of David Bieber. There wasn't even an archives at that point. There was no real central repository. Even the record right. companies, the film companies, they weren't saving their own things. Well, let me ask you something, though, because to me, when I look around here, I see, like I said before, decades and history here. But I also see a library of different uh, categories. Right. So it's like... If someone were somehow to just snap their fingers and have the room of just film, the room of just politics, the room of just Disney, music, you could imagine that category. I could also imagine a category of 1960, 1980, 1990. Is that ever something that you foresee or of that sort of categorization? Yeah, I've already begun to do that and... I'm working with, you know, people and it's kind of turned into a business, which is kind of completely unexpected. You know, it's like there are second acts in America. It all becomes a matter of, the you know, kind of utilizing the software uh, and the technology to cross-reference all those categories that you're talking about. Let's say that there's an issue of Billboard magazine from 1982 that has a great Rolling Stones ad that also has a great Elton John ad. Right. Where do you put that? Do you put right. that in Billboard because yeah. it's a magazine that you can have the chronological order? Or do you, you know, obviously I'm not going to rip the pages out of the magazine to put, you know, the Stones ad in the Stones pile. Well, you know, you it's know, interesting because right. I'm taking a music museums and exhibitions course and we're actually going into museums mm. and we're going into their archives and I'm mm. asking them like so how do you organize all this stuff so we were at the the Peabody Museum at Harvard the Essex? Pe uh, no not Essex Peabody oh, okay, oh. Yeah, right yeah. next to the uh, right. Harvard Museum of Natural History right and they have a lot of indigenous people's artifacts there mm -hmm. and they separate all their bows and arrows and mm -hmm. different things by region yeah, so region, this, this is not, all not year or century. These things have been thought about by museum historians and curators and things like that. So, do you have somebody doing that? Is this? I've had like, people who have the scholarly background yeah. here, but I think it's almost premature that, in terms of systems, I, I mean, I kind of have my own systems set up. Yeah. And before that cross-referential type of uh, application of software and technology, yeah. I need to know, I need the first-hand experience. I almost need to play in my own sandbox before I start applying someone else's systems because that, what you're saying, you're getting an education in it. I'm getting the fulfillment of delayed gratification, <laughs> you know, that I get to play with these things finally. And then we'll worry about the systems. Plus, you almost have to take it out of the box to really understand like you, you have to like have it laid out on the floor to be able to understand the scope of what you have and then say, now what do I, how do I now attack this so that everything can be accessed, we can find what we need to find. Yeah, yeah. 
And I mean, it's a monster. It really is. It, it, this is completely a work in progress. That uh, it's exciting. That it is, and it, it's not like it has its absolute roadmap. I, when Stephen Mindich, when the Phoenix closed and FNX was sold, and he actually connected me with Steve Samuels, uh, who uh, owns the Verb Hotel. So that was the first opportunity to really in a major way to showcase the content where the marching orders were we want to celebrate boston music we want to celebrate uh boston media and boston pop culture and the howard the old howard johnson's was like yeah. hours away from the wrecking ball and then Stephen Mindich connected me with Steve Samuels and the Verb Hotel emerged. And now I'm into my second five-year cycle of you right. know, a very successful relationship. In that period preceding the Verb, I was working with Stephen Mindich on the transference of the contents of the Phoenix and WFNX and all the related companies to Northeastern University. Mm. This fell into their library, the Snell Library. Yep. Their concentration was urban studies but they really didn't have much material. The biggest thing that they had at that point was 50 boxes of the papers of the first African-American Supreme Court Justice of Massachusetts. And he had entrusted uh, his papers to them. And that was kind of the major element of their urban studies at that point. Yeah. But then the Phoenix came along. They have all the Phoenix now. Yeah, On the strength yeah. of getting the Phoenix content, they were able to work out a deal with the Globe so that when the Globe left Morrissey Boulevard, the Globe photo file, which I believe is a million point two photos, is now part yeah. of Northeastern's collection. I've I, I seen, they, they laid it out to us to show us what they have there. They're really doing an, an excellent job yeah. at the Northeastern Library. But, but I've seen the meticulous treatment. You know, it is truly white glove. Yeah. It is truly yeah. data entry gloves. point, every single item. And it's fastidious, and it's for you know centuries to come. Yeah. You know. Wait, but Chuck, isn't that the 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 ma like what you're majoring in or your master's? I'm majoring in public history. Oh, and this so is urban studies. It. It's got a dovetail. There's got to well, be a sure. There's digital. There's digital history, which is taking stuff like this and putting. Oh, I just may have thought of my new project. You should work with David on your I dissertation. Of, I have to come up with. He could a, be your project honorary and this mentor. Could be it. Oh my god. Oh my god. Yeah. Well, though he, but he'll do the work, and you can just put like the David Bieber will be at the end of it. I'll do. I have to do all the work. I'm, I'm giving gonna... you an A automatically. Really? Yeah. 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 I don't Absolutely. know if you're allowed to do that. Well, but so we've talked a little bit about the categorization and the fact that it's this new. It could be a new job, and you, you know, you have well, to sort is. of get to know all this yeah. before you let anybody in and categorize. What I'm also so impressed with, just conceptually, or sort of the feel of being here is the lack of that. I, I love the randomness of right, it. Right. And to me, there's the a... The lack of what? The lack, the of, lack what? of the categorization, the lack of the organization, the all yeah, of that. Yeah. We're, what we're doing yeah. now is we're talking about the yeah. software and how you can sort of put things into years or clothing or music or whatever. Yeah. But I love the fact that... I was, I was joking about BJ's wholesale before, where you, you're looking at something right next to another artifact that doesn't relate i love the the randomness is kind of is kind of beautiful I well because say. i think that we're having some fun with it too i work with other people chuck white and lance salemo and Jeannie smith and uh you know peter casperson steven supporta steve ferrara these are all like-minded people we overlap and when we find something that excites us 
we put it out on display, even if it's for a day or for a week, you know, huh. we will yeah. utilize the shelves and the display cabinets and it's there and then it's kind of put where it, air quotes, belongs. But until it gets to that point, uh, it's there just because mm. look what I found. You know, it's kind of that fun experience. And when you're talking about having individual rooms like a 1969 room yeah. or a space room, I would love that, but you know, what is the challenge? The challenge to that is finding the appropriate building that gives you that latitude to really just right. spread your wings. I mean, I used to, I used to joke with Stephen Mindich because he was an art buyer and he would go to galleries, he would go to openings, and you know, I would joke with his wife Maria Lopez. I would say. Stephen doesn't need to buy more art. He needs to buy more walls, you know? And that's what it's all about. Yeah. You, you, you need, you know, I mean, the things that are already, we keep shifting and, and uh, evolving items on the walls here just because we could change it on a daily basis. Yeah. And, you know, but it would be a little mind but Does your mind keep up with that, of where things are in general? Well, I think that uh, there are ultimate uh points of retrieval i mean we we try and as we open boxes to put yeah. things where they belong so it's not a challenge of a black hole of, of the universe where did that thing disappear again to if i were to put down my mic and go around and get a couple of items right now could i kind of quiz you to see where thing where it was found yeah, sure. Yeah. All right. Can um, I go find two things? Sure. All right. I'll be right back. You, you don't guys forget where they are, because then you got to put them back. This is not the Dewey Decimal System, but you can find exactly right. where there's it no, goes. Uh, uh, there's no card catalog. You got to mark it where you get <laughs> okay. it out of. All right. But yeah, I do love how this is like walking into. I wouldn't say it's like walking into your grandmother's attic because it's more organized than that. But it is walking. You just never know you're going to see around the corner. How much do you think is still left to open? Is there even a number? Is there even a way to view? I, I would say at this point, you know, we're maybe fifty percent done 50%. at best. Yeah, and that's over. That's two that's, years. It's been back. two and a half years, anyhow. Yeah, I guess yeah. you got a little bit of. But uh, I think that job security there. Yeah, I will share with you that well, this film shows building eight that I'm in was not ready, and so all the two hundred and thirty-seven pallets, which was twelve and a half tractor trailer loads landed in building two and just sat there until this space was prepared. And there is a video of a slow, silent walk around for two and a half minutes, just showing all the boxes on pallets and shrink wrapped. And you can see that it was great that these things were in boxes because, you know, just the dirt in the atmosphere sure. settling on these boxes over 10, 20, hmm. 30 years. They're shrink wrapped too. They were always shrink wrapped? Yeah. Or, yeah, yeah. Great. yeah. So okay. Now, first item. Well, there's two cassette tapes. Cassette tapes? That's boring. <laughs> <laughs> One is. Uh, the Beatles. Um, the Beatles. Uh, twist and shout. You can do that. No, you can't do that. Do you want to know no, a secret? secret? Well, yeah, okay. and and that's that's probably a uh, a counterfeit slash bootleg tape that uh, no royalties were paid. Somebody just you know grabbed the content that was in the uh, Beatles artifact box area. You know that's where items uh, that are odd shapes uh, and. Uh, 
are vital for instant retrieval if there's a Beatles exhibit or an installation going on. That's where that would be. Okay, so we'll put down the mics in a second. I want you to take me to that because I don't trust you right now. <laughs> and then the, the the next one is Billy Squire, Enough is Enough, because this is a music podcast, so I was going to do two of those. Oh, okay. So you got to right. tell us where that one is. Well, and so then the last thing is this baseball that says The Babe there was only one. It's a picture of oh, Babe Ruth smoking a cigar. Well, actually, that's John Goodman. Oh, so, oh that is got John Goodman. Yeah. <laughs> good God. You could have done better. That, that comes... No, no. That's, that's good. These no, are, you need to find something. Not, idea. Why don't you do something? These are not loser. your... Right, I'm going to go do something. These are not your everyday, ordinary items. Okay, you know? so, David, let's put down the mics and let's, let's take All a right, break. All right, well, but I will tell you that... Winnie Winnie is making me lose. That's that's the objective, right? That's exactly. his mission. Chuck's okay. going to make you lose big time. <laughs> But uh, that, that, right, tell us about this John Goodman. So that babe. was that was for uh, the Babe for the movie where uh, John Goodman was was playing Babe. Oh, Ruth. okay, yeah. And so yeah. that would have been in the sports area on the shelves in, in the back area. But the Billy Squire uh, was, uh, I would guess, most likely in uh, local music uh, Boston bands. Uh, he is Bostonian, yeah, right? He is. Is he, is. he is he around? He lives in New York now. Uh, he was originally uh, in a group called Piper which was on uh, A&M Records, and that was uh, in the 1970s. Right. Oh, okay, uh, Chuck's got some good stuff the here. first one, <clears throat> this thing. All right, so that was just a... This is a, a camel. A camel from Casablanca Records. You know, you get the theme, Casablanca. Yeah. Uh, but it was uh, an achievement award given to a woman, a friend of mine, uh, Ellen Darst. So that's just a uh, an <laughs> autograph poster from an in-store that Robert Klein did from a comedy album that was back in the 1970s. So, okay, so I think what we what would be fun, maybe, you know, we did a few of these, but it would be really fun, actually, to just to do this as like a an extra. Because the randomness is beautiful, because we pick something out, and you just tell us some great stories about it. Yeah, you don't know what, I was impressed. You don't That's know what good. you're going to get. Well, you know, quite frankly... Has that been it, done before we, with you? Or? We didn't do this. It was planned to do it. We may still do it. We were going to do a 60 or a 90 second What's in the Box where we would just grab a box, randomly open it, and be surprised. Oh, I like that. And so let's, I want to kind of go through everything where you, you can see these places, these these exhibits. Yeah, sure. Um, at the Verb Hotel, the Verb is, Hotel, which is right, which is right off of Boylston Street, right outside of Fenway Park, yeah, twelve seventy one Howard Johnson Street, used to be right next yeah. to Hojoko. Right. Do you know why it's called Hojoko? Because it used to be Howard Johnson's. Yeah, Hojo. That is right there in the shadow of Fenway Park, it is? and that has been. Uh, just an incredible experience and a showcase for content and also a reference point that I can tell people maybe don't come here, haven't seen the archives here in Norwood. Yeah, it's a great that, example. You know, you can 24 hours a day, just yeah. tell the valet that you're there to check out the lobby and uh, the corridors. And, uh, yeah. you know, it's constantly changing in terms of the content. We're doing individual rooms. So there's now an Aerosmith room, a cars room. Just adds... Uh, an experience to the hotel guest. Oh, quick thing. Do you know Greg Hawks? Yes. Yeah. He's been here. He's going to um he's going to come on the show with us. Oh, great. So, Excellent. Yeah. I'm a huge Cars fan. So yeah. I'm yeah. very excited about that. At the Boston Music Awards. Yes. Uh, he was there, he yeah. Played. yeah. He played. Yeah. He was playing with Ada Japan, yeah. Yeah. And I did the um uh, oh, that's right. You did the introduction the, there. Yeah, the that's right. Memorial that. for yeah, you did uh, a very it was nice really job. special. It was really yeah. nice. I meant to, I meant to say you. that you did. Yeah, even the job. millennials like totally appreciated it. Yeah, yeah. Everyone you know, really it was really that. cool. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. so you at the Verb Hotel. Yeah. You were also at the 
Folk Americana Roots Hall of Fame. You have exhibits there as yes. well. Yeah. Far off! And we also have our <laughs> exactly. Hallways podcast, so give a little plug for that, that we're, that we're also doing. Yes. A separate, yeah, a separate no, we are, we are joined at the hipster. Where else outside of this building will you find... Some of some other art, some uh, of these artifacts are they are they other display in there? I know that's appearing in a lot of uh, documentaries and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and certainly, the, certainly the BCN uh, American, Revolution American Revolution documentary film. Exactly. Yeah. What I do and what uh, the people I work with do is that we're equipped to do installations, exhibits related to almost any subject, and we have great versatility, flexibility, and the main understanding that has to be you know presented to the world at large is it's not just boston centric it's not just boston music all of the verb is really the embodiment yeah. of that oh and then buy me boston i saw you that, oh yeah that, yeah that as yeah. well which in, is a book in that by book, uh, uh, brian, brian coleman brian coleman brian, and yeah you know, buy me boston is a book of ads from the 1970s 80s and 90s that appeared in uh, one-off publications or uh, Boston After Dark or the Boston Phoenix or Boston Magazine. I saw you at the BPL. I saw you and Brian. Yeah. There's another book that just came out uh, by uh, a writer, Charles Giuliano, who uh, is documented in interviews uh, with about 15, 20 people, uh, and I'm included as part of that, uh, Boston counterculture, 1960s through 1980s. Oh, neat. So, that coming out? Uh, it's out now. So... Um, you know, there's uh, always something going on. David, thank you very much. Oh, my pleasure. We really appreciate it. This is awesome. We would like to thank David for sitting with us and for putting up with our gawking at the archives. To learn more about the David Bieber archives, go to davidbieberarchives.com. We'd also like to thank Jeannie Smith for her assistance and the entire staff at the archives for the good work they are doing. Go to AboveTheBasement.com where you can sign up for our newsletter, listen and subscribe to our podcast, like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter, and look at all the nice pictures we post on Instagram. We are everywhere. From all of us at Above the Basement, thanks for listening. Tell your friends. And remember, Boston music, like its history, is unique. <laughs>